Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 is where we'll start here in just a moment. I was in high school when I saw my first opera. It was La Boheme. And I did not know until I got there that the opera was in Italian. And I had no clue what was going on for a a large portion of the opera. But as I watched, even though I couldn't understand anything, I didn't know what was happening, as I watched, I could pick up on some of the big storylines. I knew some of the big things that were happening. Like, this guy likes this girl, and she likes him back, and, oh, they're falling in love, and, oh, now they're married, and, oh, now she's sick, and now they're apart, and she's with someone else, and then at the end they get back together, and she dies, and everyone cries, and that's kind of, spoiler alert, that's the big picture redneck overview of La Boheme. Um, Even though I didn't speak Italian, I still could walk away from the opera with an understanding of some of the big plot points. And that's the kind of approach we're going to take this morning to our passage, Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. It is a hotly debated passage of Scripture. We will not settle that debate today. There is much in this passage that could be confusing, but there are some big-ticket truths to feed our souls and to give us encouragement for the days ahead. Uh, Now, when I say there's things we can take away we can understand, we're we're not just going to walk away with plot points in the story. We're going to walk away with ammunition, with strength, with power that helps us through our hardest days as we wait on God to set everything right. One thing that strikes me about chapter 9 and really the last half of the book of Daniel, we have four visions given to Daniel. Every one of these visions is given as a response to spiritual or emotional distress. This is Daniel coming to God disturbed at the way things are, upset about how things are going. And in order to comfort Daniel, God gives him the vision of chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Now, when you've had a bad day, have you ever opened to Daniel 9 to find your comfort? No. You go to Psalm 23 or something in the Gospels, John 10, or you, you, go, to, uh, I don't, you go to something Paul writes in one of his epistles. But Daniel 9 is here for struggling people, hurting believers, people who wonder what's happening, when's all this going to end, and God gives comfort and strength to us in this story. So the vision given to Daniel was given in a time of distress to comfort and encourage him, and that's its role for us today. So my goal this morning is to give you understanding that will encourage you. You're going to walk out of here this morning with understanding and with encouragement. That's our target this morning. I want to show you in this notoriously difficult passage two undeniable truths that will nourish your soul. So follow along with me as I read Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 20. Daniel says, While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before the Lord, my God concerning the holy mountain of my God. While I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation, Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. 
At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until a decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Preaches itself. I want you to see here that there is nourishment for our souls. It's a confusing passage, but we're going to walk away with some understanding this morning. What can we know with certainty from this vision that God gives to Daniel? Two things we can know with certainty. The first thing is this. God's love is central to our identity. God's love is on full display in his interaction with Daniel here in chapter 9. The passage opens by reminding us that Daniel has been in prayer. And you'll remember from last week that Daniel knows from reading the book of Jeremiah that the length of the exile was supposed to be 70 years. And so here he is when chapter 9 opens. He, they're at about the 70-year mark, but things aren't changing. Things aren't moving. No one's packing up to go back to Jerusalem. And last week in chapter 9, Daniel prays to God, and he confesses sin. It's a powerful prayer. If you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to sit down with the beginning of chapter 9 and spend some time with it. It's an incredible prayer of confession and pleading with God to move and act on behalf of his people for the sake of his glory. Now, Daniel's prayer, very moving, and also Daniel himself, he describes his own physical state. He's extremely weary, and it's in the middle of this prayer that the angel of the Lord shows up. Gabriel arrives, and this is uh, the second time we've seen Gabriel in the book of Daniel. Gabriel shows up in chapter 8. We'll see Gabriel again in Luke chapter 1, but that comes at Christmas time. So here's the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, who comes to Daniel in his extreme weariness to give him encouragement, to give him a word from the Lord. Now, Daniel, in verse 21, gives us an incredible time stamp. Look at verse 21 with me. It's a detail that we might just read over and not even pay attention to. He says, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in my first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. About the time of the evening offering. Did the residents of Persia, where Daniel lived at this time, were they offering evening sacrifices to God? No. 
were the exiles, the Jewish exiles in Persia, were they continuing evening sacrifices to God? No, they were not. No one is offering evening sacrifices at this point in Daniel's life. When was the last time Daniel saw or took part in an evening sacrifice? It would have been over 70 years ago when he was a boy back in Jerusalem, when the temple was still standing and worship was still happening. And so what he could have said, what would have made a lot more sense, is if he had just said, Gabriel showed up about 3 in the afternoon. But that's not how he tells time. He's telling time by Jerusalem's clock, 70 years after the fact. He still remembers the love and the grace of God he's experienced in worship. He still remembers the grace of God given to him in those sacrifices. His heart is still in tune with the love and the grace of God given to him. That's why this very old man, 70 plus years after the fact, still tells time by Jerusalem's clock. It tells us something about the heart of this man. He is deeply in love with the Lord. He remembers worship and longs for that worship again. He looks forward to the day when that worship is restored. Daniel's identity never wavers. He is always God's man. It does not matter where his address is. It doesn't matter how long he's in exile. God always has Daniel's heart. What a beautiful detail, an incredible way for Daniel to tell time. Now, as Daniel continues, verse 23, uh, the angel Gabriel speaks to him. And Gabriel tells him this, verse 23, he says, I've come to answer you because you are treasured by God. So you can, your Bible might say because you are loved by God. Feel free to underline that four times, draw a box around it, draw arrows pointing to it. Because when you just thumb through your Bible, you need to see that line. You are treasured by God. I'll let you in on a little secret. Next week in chapter 10, Daniel's going to be told that same line two more times. And when you hear it next week, you're not going to say, well, that's redundant. I already knew that. Because the love of God for us never grows boring, never gets tired, never gets old. And that may be what some of you need to hear just this morning, coming in, hurting, with struggles of many kinds, questions in your mind. You need to hear the word of the Lord say to you, you are treasured by God. Daniel's treasured not because he's a better degree of man than anyone else, not because he is sinlessly perfect, far from it. It is God's grace and only God's grace that gives his love to Daniel. How astonishing is it to hear this from God? You are treasured by God. You may not understand how the situation is going to get fixed. You may not understand the timeline ahead. But as long as you know I'm loved by God, that solves a whole host of problems. I mean, think about what we are like. We are grumpy and we are whiny and we are ill-tempered and we are apathetic and we are fearful and doubtful, and sinful, and yet you are loved by God. If you had to cling to just one line out of all of chapter 9, that's the one. You're loved by God. That truth marks us deeply. Daniel knew he was loved by God, 
And that's why his heart and his mind remains with Jerusalem and with worship and with the glory of God's name. His experience of God's love in the past marks him in the present and steals him. It strengthens him for an uncertain future. That's why the love of God is so central to our identity. Who we are is not defined by the things we do, the things we like, or the mistakes we've made. Who we are is marked by the love of God. You are treasured by God this morning. We'll have a lot of questions at the end of chapter 9. One thing that is not in doubt in any way is God's love for you. Be encouraged this morning, church. I said there's two things we can carry away with certainty from this passage. The first is that God's love is central to our identity. And the second is this. God's victory is strength in our waiting. God's victory is strength in our waiting. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for coming to church. See yourself out. Uh, Verses 24 through 27. Woo doggies. Uh, It is a challenge. Uh, The past couple of weeks, I've consulted eight different commentaries and three academic papers, which I understood four words in. And from all those resources, I'm not exaggerating, there was not one bit of agreement between them. I, I want to be careful here. There's places where there is agreement, but overall, big picture, every resource I went to had something different to say, a different way to make sense of these details. Now, on the one hand, that might be discouraging. It is if you've got to preach it a little bit. Uh, but there's also good news in that we have some freedom within these boundaries, but there's some direction for us in this passage. So uh, I just want you to understand up front, I'm not going to solve the mystery of these verses today. And I'll say some things that you are absolutely going to disagree with. But I want to make sure you know this about my heart on this matter. I want to approach it humbly, not as if I have it figured out, because I don't. I I have an idea of of how these things make sense to me, uh, and I want to share that with you. But I'm not telling you that if you view, view it different, that you're wrong and I'm right, and you've got to come my way or else. That's not the case at all. In fact, I'll probably change my mind later this afternoon about what I think about these verses, and that's fine. So, I, I might uh, disappoint some of you or make you upset with what I have to say. There's no need for any of that, really. Let's just come humbly to this passage and say, there's a lot of mystery here. There are some things that are certain, some things we don't know for sure, and we just live with the Word of God together in Christian unity. All right? Uh, so, here's how I want to approach these last few verses. I, I want to walk through verse by verse identify what we can, offer a little bit of commentary, and then I'll share with you my take on it for you to ridicule and mock and all of that. Okay? Are you pumped up now? I can tell. You're ready to go. Me too. So let's get rolling here. Verses 24 through 27, um, very challenging. This passage requires us to put into practice an important principle of biblical interpretation. And the principle is this. Interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear. Interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear. 
if I use Daniel 9, 24 through 27 as the lens through which I interpret the whole Bible, I'm going to be in trouble. But if I take God's grand narrative of redemption and apply that to these verses, it helps me see with better clarity. It doesn't answer every question, but it helps me see it better. So what is clear about the Bible? What's clear is that the whole of the Bible describes for us God's mission to glorify himself by redeeming the elect through faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again. That's clear. Nothing we read today changes that. That grand narrative actually helps us make sense of what we're going to read. So keeping that at the forefront, let's jump into the deep end. Starting at verse 24, Gabriel tells Daniel, 70 weeks are decreed. Right away, there's disagreement. What does the 70 weeks mean? Now, you remember, they're at the end of 70 years of exile. Now the angel says, 70 weeks are decreed. There's 70 more weeks to come. But the literal translation of 70 weeks is 70 sevens. Now, that word sevens is one way in which Old Testament writers will describe a week. What everyone will agree upon is that the 70 weeks, this time period the angel's talking about, is not a literal 70 weeks, but it's extrapolated over a longer period of time. One school of thought says uh, the 70 weeks, the 77s, are seven periods of 70 years. If you're familiar with the Old Testament concept of Jubilee, Leviticus 25 is where you can read about it. Uh, This school of thought says uh, this is like mega jubilee, 770s, 490 years. And this school of thought goes to great lengths to identify specific dates and even at times uses creative math to get to a literal exact 490 years. The other school of thought says, oh, this is, it's just a long time. It's, that's, it's. I mean, there's, there's something happening, 77s. We don't know exactly what that means. We're just going to use that as general language for it. we got a long time ahead of us. Whether it's 490 years, literal, or something general, the bottom line is it is a long period of time ahead for God's people. Uh, the angel is telling Gabriel that although the exile is over, your time in difficulty is not. And God's work of redemption is not over yet. There is much, much more to come. Uh, And so what will be accomplished in that 70 weeks time period? Again, put your eyes on verse 24. And verse 24 gives us six purposes that are accomplished in this 70 weeks time period. The angel says it will bring the rebellion to an end put a stop to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy. When it says seal up vision and prophecy, it doesn't mean put it in a lockbox and it's kept secret. It means it's made official or it's verified. Seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Those are the six purposes. Now, Surprise, there's disagreement on when these six purposes are fulfilled. One school of thought would tell you this. It would say all six of those things are accomplished 
when Jesus dies on the cross. It's all set in the past. Jesus dies on the cross. And then in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. That's when all six of these purposes are accomplished. Another school of thought says these are all in the future. They will all six be accomplished at the end of all things in the great battle between God and his Messiah and the Antichrist. These are all future-focused. My school of thought says I find agreement and disagreement with both of those school of thoughts. There are some things that are identified here in these six purposes that are past. And there are some things that seem like they are still future. So a past thing, something accomplished at the cross, one of the purposes is to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity. Well, did Jesus atone for our iniquity at the cross? Absolutely, he did. So that is an event that's accomplished past. But what about this last thing, to anoint the most holy place? That, to me, seems like a future event. We're not there yet. Here's the good news. If we were to take these six purposes and put them in front of any child in this church, and we were to ask them, who is this verse talking about? They would say, Jesus. Interpret what's unclear in light of what's clear. And what's clear is that these verses talk about Jesus and his work on our behalf at the cross. So there's encouragement for us. We know that Jesus is here in verse 24, that his death on the cross is pivotal in accomplishing God's purposes. Whether these are purposes accomplished past or future or a mix of both, here's the big deal. These things will be done and they are beautiful. And they are glorious. And these are the things that fuel our worship of God. That he's put a stop to sin and atone for our iniquity. And we enjoy everlasting righteousness. Those are good things. Verse 25, as the revelation moves forward. Verse 25 breaks our 70 weeks into two smaller segments. It gives us a seven-week segment and a 62-week segment. And that leaves us with one more week. We'll get there in just a minute. But Gabriel tells Daniel this, verse 25. He says, From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. I understand Gabriel to be giving us bookends on this 69-year period. It starts with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And it ends with the coming of the anointed one. So if you're building a timeline, it starts with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. There's a seven-week period. Again, that's figurative, not a literal seven weeks, but some measure of time, seven weeks. And then there's a 62-week period that follows that. And that 62-week period comes to a close with the arrival of the anointed one. Guess what? There's disagreement here. Who knew it? So someone will look at this and say, you know what, Cody, you're wrong. The anointed one there is not Jesus. It's not a bookend reference. Rather, that reference to the anointed one should stay connected to the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And in the book of Isaiah, King Cyrus of Persia is called God's anointed one, chosen by God, to send his people back and to rebuild Jerusalem. Some would say this is a reference to King Cyrus. And those people that believe that love the Lord and they love the Bible and they're not wackadoo and they believe that Jesus is victorious and all these things, they just see this different. Verse 25 describes the rebuilding of Jerusalem. 
Uh, it says that Jerusalem will be built with a plaza and a moat. Now, I think this is a figure of speech. I think it's a way of saying the city will be rebuilt from top to bottom, streets to ditches, soup to nuts, however you want to say it. But the city will be rebuilt, and it will exist in difficult times. And those difficult times are the duration of the seven weeks period and the 62 weeks. That full 69 weeks is marked by difficulty. Verse 26 tells us that after those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. What's that a reference to? Everyone, regardless of your school of thought, would agree that this is a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. He will be cut off and will have nothing. The language there is the same as Isaiah 53, which says he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. So we have agreement on that line, but from there forward, it's just mass chaos. Just tons of different approaches uh, to these verses. So, one school of thought. The one that says that the purposes of verse 24 are all accomplished at the cross. They're all accomplished in the past. Would say that verses 26 and 27 should be read in parallel with each other. That they're not describing sequential points on a timeline, but rather verse 27 retells the events of verse 26. And so that view holds that with the line, if you look at verse 26, the people of the coming ruler, that from there everything is future. Excuse me, all those things are accomplished in the past. And when they go to verse 27 where it talks about he will make a firm covenant, Verse 27, they say, well, that's about Jesus. Jesus is the one that makes a firm covenant. He'll make a firm covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and offering. They read verse 27 as very positive. And they say, look, Jesus is the one that did this. Just, this is the book of Hebrews in Daniel 9, that there's an end to these sacrifices. His sacrifice is one and for all. They read verse 27 very positive. Now, to that school of thought that sees that verses 26 and 27 should be read in parallel, I would say, says who? Who decides that? Who makes that rule? I don't agree with that. I don't think you're a heretic for believing it. I I just, I have questions about it. I struggle with that approach to this. I don't think all these things are past. I think some are, and I think some are future. The other main school of thought that would say all of these things are future Uh, That other school of thought says that everything from the people of the coming ruler uh, and on is future-focused. And so this school of thought would say that the 69 weeks ends with the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus dies. Jerusalem's destroyed by the Roman army. Now we exist in what's called this intermediate time called the church age, and in, in front of us to come is this one final week of intense fighting and wars, decreed desolations, all sorts of horrible things yet to come when the Antichrist runs amok on God's people in creation. And so according to that school of thought, it's the Antichrist and his army that destroys Jerusalem and the temple. It's a short time of intense warfare. But I've got problems with this view. Again, I'm not saying my view's right. I'm just saying I got problems with this one. I don't have a, the right alternative. I have an alternative, 
but I'm not going to plant my flag in it. I'm just saying I've got some issues with this view. This view says that in the future, the temple will be destroyed again. For the temple to be destroyed again, it means a temple has to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, when I read the book of Revelation, there is a temple there, but it's not the kind of temple we think. It's not a temple of brick and mortar. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple. It's not a temple of brick and mortar that people build, that has a physical location that you can go see. Jesus himself is the one. Uh, Several years ago, my wife and I took a trip to Israel, and we didn't understand what this was at the time, but we were taken to a presentation by a group called the Third Temple Institute. And they are working to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And it's fascinating work, and it's inspiring work. Cody thinks, theologically, it is a flawed work because Jesus is the temple. He is the most holy place. The end of the temple is seen even at his crucifixion when the veil of the temple is torn top to bottom. So that's my question for those brothers and sisters. Now, some would say, Cody, that that doesn't sound very pro-Israel. Isn't it interesting how our view of the end times impacts our foreign policies? And I'm not anti-Israel, not by any measure at all. I cannot imagine a more pro-Israel message than this. Your Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. And by faith in him, your sins are forgiven, and you are held forever and ever. So, I've got questions about things. That's all there is to it. How do I see these verses? Let me show you the Cody Busby outline, timeline, TM, trademark, whatever. Uh, I want to walk you through kind of how I think about these. Again, I'm not saying this is the way you have to or you must. I'm just saying this is how I do. And again, I'm going to change my mind later today, so don't hold me to any of this, all right? But um, do we have our outline? Boom, there you go. Don't worry about writing this down because, again, it's it's not a hill worth dying on. But here's how I approach it. Our timeline left to right is 70 weeks long. The passage breaks it down into three smaller time periods, correct? Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. The seven weeks begins with the decreed return to Jerusalem. Cyrus of Persia gives the decree, writes the check to rebuild the holy city. Uh, The end of the seven weeks comes with the end of rebuilding. So the end of Ezra and Nehemiah's work is where those seven weeks comes to an end. But from the start of the seven weeks to the end of the 62 weeks, it's a period marked by great difficulty. That's what the passage tells us. That difficulty is seen first in the rampaging of nations. Remember what we learned in chapter 7 and 8 about these beastly kingdoms that just tear each other apart and tear apart God's people? That's, that's what we have here in this difficult time. It's also a difficult time because of the silence of God. You have 400 years from the end of Malachi's prophecies to the opening of the Gospels. 400 years of prophetic silence. I think that's a difficult time for God's people. Those 62 weeks come to a close with the birth of John the Baptist, the last of the prophets, and the arrival of Jesus, and then Jesus is cut off at the cross. He lays down his life. He has nothing, and the sinless Son of God dies in our place for our sin. 
The year 70 AD, the people of the coming ruler destroy the city and the sanctuary. I take that to be a reference to the Roman army who are foreshadowing the Antichrist, the great enemy of God's people, and they come and destroy the Jer- Jerusalem and they destroy the temple in 70 AD. The coming ruler is the Antichrist. And we have one final week left. It's a period of intense warfare, decreed desolations and suffering. It's intense. And the Antichrist, at the beginning of it, makes a covenant with nations against God. And halfway through that final week, uh, he tries to outlaw the worship of God altogether, to stifle it, to stamp it out, to destroy worship and worshipers. And then... Here's the one thing we can all agree on. At the very end of that final week, God's decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. And we all say, amen. It's the best I can do. And I'll I'll roll with it for the time being. Feel free to disagree vehemently and to hack it apart and do it because it's not a hill I'm going to die on. The big ticket item here is God is victorious. Jesus died. He rose again. The desolator eats his destruction at the end of all these things. That we can all agree on. Regardless of your view on these matters, there's one central truth that's true for all of us. Whether you think all of this is in the past, all of it's in the future, or it's a bit of both, We're all people who are waiting. We're waiting on God to bring all of this to a close. Are you good at waiting? I'm not. As soon as I wrap a Christmas present, I want someone to open it. And as soon as one is wrapped for me, I want to open it. I'm impatient in traffic, when I'm waiting on food, whatever the thing is. I don't wait well. I don't know that many of us do. So it's difficult to live in the gap between a promise given and a promise fulfilled. And why does God make us wait? There's any number of reasons we could point to, but I think primary among them is that God is working his perfect will in us and around us while we wait. If God just fulfilled my wants and wishes as soon as I named them, then I live for the want. I don't live for the one who fulfills. But in my waiting, I learn to be content with God. Imagine that. I have to learn to be content with God, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, creator, loving. I have to learn to be content with him and not trinkets. What does that tell you about my heart? The weight is ordained by God, and it's his gift to us to shape our hearts, to love him and to depend on him. And when we have God, We lack nothing. When we have God, we have everything. Now, with Daniel's vision, we know we are not waiting on an uncertain outcome. Our waiting is colored by God's total victory in which he brings rebellion to an end, stops sin, atones for iniquity, brings in everlasting righteousness, seals up vision and prophecy, and anoints the most holy place. God's doing all of that. Now, if you don't believe that the battle is the Lord's, then your waiting will be torture. But if you believe the vision and understand the victory of God, then your waiting will be rejoicing. Have you learned anything this morning? I hope you've learned a couple of things. 
I hope you've seen clearly in this passage God's love and God's victory. Those are things that we can carry with us to give us strength and hope in our hardest days. Now, in this story, I'm just stunned by this fact. In this story, the terrifying and monstrous desolator is destroyed forever by God. But the humble, praying man of faith is exalted by God and given everlasting righteousness. So our lives with God today, I think, are best described by the title of one of my favorite books, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's what life today is like with God. It's a long obedience in the same direction. But before long, we will sing a long song in the same direction. And the words of that song from Revelation 5 are this, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us, and especially words like this one that are challenging and not easy. I don't doubt that Daniel walked away from this vision with questions. But I also know that in his extreme weariness, you came to him with your word, and you reassured him of your love, and you promised him again of the victory to come. So, Lord, help us to learn like Daniel did. And help us to trust you even as your plans continue to unfold. This morning, God, reassure us of your love for your children. And Father, today, give us a vision of your victory that holds us through every trial because we know that Jesus died and rose again. We know that the great enemy has a destruction that awaits. We know that the victory is yours. So Lord, we praise you and we thank you for this salvation and for the promise of an everlasting righteousness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.